Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2023 Absite podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier they chose a partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like the Signia, Tri-Staple Smart Stapling Platform, and Ligature Vessel Sealer. But Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is to engineer the extraordinary. And with 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. Are you a passionate surgical educator with something to say? Then join Behind the Knife and let the world hear. Behind the Knife is the number one surgery podcast in the world, with each episode reaching 20,000 listeners. Our current group of subspecialty teams have created incredibly diverse and engaging content, but their commitments are nearly finished, and we want to open up the opportunity to all of our listeners. We're looking for teams of three to four surgeons who will develop one new subspecialty podcast every four months. To learn more, check out the show notes or contact us at hello at behindthenife.org. Applications are due February 13th. All right, and welcome back to the second part of the Absite Trauma Series. Um, once again, we are joined by uh, Dr. Matthew Martin, who's going to um, take us through the second half of the trauma. So uh, thank you, Dr. Martin, for joining us again. And we also uh, have one of our colleagues here at Madigan, uh, John Cuckelman, who will be helping with the second part of trauma and critical care. Thanks, Kevin. Glad to be here. All right. Uh, Dr. Martin, take it away. Okay. So blunt abdominal trauma. Uh, the evaluation. I think most of the patients are evaluated with now a, a FAST exam plus minus a CT scan. So real quickly on the FAST exam, what are we looking for? And this is the, the focused abdominal sonography for trauma. Right. So you're looking at the kidney, liver interface, the spleen. Well, what are we looking for? Oh, you're looking for f- free fluid. Good. And just remember the ultrasound is only looking for free fluid in the abdomen or where else do you look for fluid besides oh, the abdomen? at the pericardium. Or the pericardial window. Good. And what is that fluid? Um, well, I guess we don't know exactly, but the concern is that it's... What could it be? Uh, blood or succus. Blood, succus, or... Urine. More. Blood, succus, or urine. All right. So compared to a CT scan, uh, we got to talk about the pros and cons. Which one is more sensitive? Um, a CT scan. Good. Uh, although a fast exam is reasonably sensitive, especially for the pericardial view, which one's more specific? The uh, CT scan is also more specific. Yeah, the CT scan is much more specific because it'll actually tell you what's injured. Um, the fast will not tell you what organ is injured. It'll just tell you there's bleeding. And what's the big weakness of the fast exam in terms of false positives, false negatives? Um, I, I guess I think of two that come to my head, but... Uh, user dependence and uh, mo- the Assu- body habitus of a patient. Assuming the user knows what they're doing, I, I mean, as a test, is oh. it false positives or false negatives? Uh, it's false negatives. Good. So so the point is you have an unstable patient and you have a negative fast that still has not ruled out that the source is the abdomen. Um, okay. Abdominal seatbelt sign. Yeah. 
What are you concerned about? Uh, I'm concerned about uh, a small bowel injury, and we're concerned about pancreas injury. Good. And plain and simple. If they give you a question with seatbelt sign, they're heading towards a usually a bowel injury, sometimes a pancreatic injury. Okay, so just blunt abdominal trauma. What are the most common injuries? Uh, blunt abdominal trauma would be your, so solid organ injuries, so spleen, liver. Good. Um, solid organ injuries. And what are the most common missed injuries? Uh, the hollow viscous, the small bowel. Hollow viscous would be one. Uh, and pancreatic then, injuries. And then probably pancreas. Yeah. Good. Okay, so management of solid organ injury. Uh, I think this is something probably most people are comfortable with because we do it a lot. So solid organ injury and they're hemodynamically unstable. OR. Good. Operative, or IR. Operative intervention. Oh, well, if they give it to you on the ab site. OR. The answer is operating room. Um, if you get a CT scan that has free fluid and you see no solid organ injury. Uh, so I would think about the uh, um, hollow viscous injury. Good. And that's a hollow viscous injury until proven otherwise. And again, if, if they give you that on the ab site, I think they're heading towards you should be exploring that patient. Okay, so now you have a CT scan in a stable patient, and it shows a solid organ injury. Just what are your principles of managing that person? Uh, so principles of management would be, uh, you know, uh, admitting to a monitored bed to so make sure that in the ICU you can non-operatively manage them, watch them, trend their hematocrits, um, grade their injury. Okay, and what would what would make you take them to the OR? Um, if they had an ongoing, uh, if they became unstable or if they had an ongoing um, uh, transfusion requirement. Good. And now angioembolization. You mentioned that as an option. Uh, what, what would be the indications for angioembolization? Uh, so if you had an active blush on your, on your CT scan. Um, so so abside exam, they give you the patient who's got a blush and they're hemodynamically stable. The answer they're generally looking for is angioembolization. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if it's spleen, liver, or kidney. That's usually the answer they're looking for. Um, any other indications for angioembolization? Uh, so if it's uh, in a place that's not easily reachable operatively, so okay. pelvic injuries uh, would, okay. would be an indication. Good. And that probably the only other ones would be some vascular complication of the injury, typically a pseudoaneurysm. Okay, abdominal stab wounds. So, so we, we generally talk about abdominal stab wounds. We like to classify them by location because I would say the location determines the workup. So what are, what are the general locations that you would, you would distinguish for stab wounds? For abdominal stab wounds, yeah. uh, right upper quadrant, potentially. Okay, so, so we'll say anterior abdominal. Anterior abdominal, posterior abdominal. Flank and back. Flank and back. And then, and then the third one would be thoracoabdominal okay. or, or subcostal, where you have to also worry about thoracic structures. Okay, so abdominal stab wounds, what would be your immediate criteria for surgery? Uh, hypotension. Um, okay. if Hemodynamic the, instability. If they have uh, succus or a, an organ protruding um, through the injury. Okay, so evisceration. Evisceration. How about their physical exam? Peritoneal. Good. So peritonitis, evisceration, uh, hemodynamic instability. You know, obviously, if they have suckers coming from the wound, an obvious bowel injury. So let's say they don't. How do you want to evaluate this person? Um, so if a hemodynamically stable patient with abdominal stab wound, um, 
some you can do a uh, local wound exploration. Good. Depending on and, your ER. And that's, a, that's, I think, another common question. So a local wound exploration, what are you looking for? And just in Fascial penetrance. What fascia? What abdominal wall fascia? It's a very specific layer that you're looking for. So anterior rectus sheath or posterior rectus sheath? Posterior rectus sheath. 50-50-90. Anterior rectus sheath. <laughs> yeah, so a local, and this is, this is often causing, a local wound exploration is looking for anterior rectus sheath penetration. Um, and and the utility of it is if you do a local wound exploration and it's negative, so there's no anterior rectus perforation, what do you do next? Well, you can uh, observe those patients or you can CT them. Or you've, you've now convinced yourself it did not go any further than the anterior rectus sheet. Discharge them home. Yeah. So, so a, a true negative where you say I've explored it and it didn't perforate anterior rectus sheath is discharge them. The problem is, what if it did perforate the anterior rectus sheath? And the reason, the reason we say it's not looking at the posterior rectus sheath is because you can't do that can't effectively at the bedside, you know, digging through the muscle. So really all you can do effectively is look at the anterior rectus sheath. Right. So now it's perforated the anterior rectus sheath. Now what should we do? Uh, so those patients, you, you, if they're stable, you could certainly get some imaging, and you could certainly, if they're stable, observe with serial exams. Good, and and I think that's the that's probably one of the biggest points in that question because the old answer used to be explore. anybody that had perforated, you explore them. That has now gone away. Now it is if they're examinable, you can do serial clinical exams. Um, if they're not examinable, that's where some people would probably say explore them or at least put a laparoscope in. Some people would say image them with a CT scan. But, but again, on the ab site, it'll be, if they're examinable, it's going to be serial clinical exams. Okay, flank stab wound. Little different. What would you do for a flank or back stab wound? And again, if they, if they ask you this question, what's the answer they're looking for? A, a, a three-phase CT. Good. CT scan and the classic answer is the triple contrast oral rectal IV, just because you, you can't assess retroperitoneal structures, and that's what's at risk of being injured. So, Thoracoabdominal stab wound. So just so everybody's the, the, you, with the triple contrast, oral rectal and IV. Is yes. Going for Although, do we really do that? Yeah. M- most people probably do. Most people now probably do oral and IV or rectal and IV. But, uh, for, again, for the boards, the answer would be a triple contrast CT. Okay, and then thoracoabdominal. Thoraco- beyond, beyond the abdomen, what else are we concerned about? Um, what are we going to image them with, or what are we concerned about? What injuries are you concerned uh, about? So you're concerned about a, a pneumothorax, a hemothorax. Good, uh, so you're concerned about the thoracic structures. Right. And, and Diaphragm injuries. Diaphragm. If they give you a you know, stab wound at the costal margin and they're stable and normal exam, and you send them home, you've, you've missed the question. They're heading you towards, you still need to evaluate all those patients for a diaphragm injury. And it's always going to be a left-sided thoracoabdominal stab wound. And how do you do that? Um, I, I think the best way to evaluate that is laparoscopically. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. you do a laparoscopic exploration. Yeah. You can also do it thoracoscopically. Most would do it laparoscopically. Good. Okay, traumatic bowel injuries. How do, we, how do we generally categorize a traumatic bowel injury? You, you categorize it, it's a binary. So you're going for destructive or non-destructive? Yes, okay. exactly. So destructive or non-destructive, what's a destructive? Uh, generally, it's over 50% of the circumference Good. of the bowel. Or? Or um, 
uh, a devascularized portion? Good. Yeah. Okay. So it's greater than 50% or devascularized. And quickly, the management of a destructive? Uh, for, 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 for destructive, it's resection. Um, Good. Resection and? Diversion. Or, or I'm sorry, resection, primary anastomosis. Yeah, that and should then, be that should be your default unless they give you some odd odd scenario, and yeah. that's for anywhere in the bowel, small bowel or colon, um, and non-destructive. Uh, generally, primary repair. Good primary repair, unless if they give you multiple in the same area, you probably resect that segment. Okay, what if now you're in the damage control setting, and you've got destructive bowel injuries? Uh, so if you're in damage control, you just, I mean, you control uh, control sepsis, control bleeding. So you staple mm-hmm. off things, leave things in discontinuity, leave the abdomen open, so it's just you resuscitate. S- you staple, staple, and you, you don't do an anastomosis. You don't do a primary repair. You generally just staple the bowel off, remove the injured segment, and get out. Penetrating colon injuries. What's our management for those? Again, 2017. Right. So a... Uh, a lot more of these are being primarily repaired. Okay. Um, and so if it's a non-destructive injury... How can, about left colon versus right colon? Um, it doesn't matter. Good. doesn't matter anymore. The, the answer should... You're generally, your answer is going to be a either a primary repair or it's going to be a resection and anastomosis. Um, it, it, we don't do many ostomies for these anymore. Now you have the classic bucket handle injury which is the injury of the small bowel where the mesentery has been torn, uh, but the bowel is intact. What are you going to do with that? I would resect it and do a primary estimate. The answer is you resect that segment because it'll look fine, but it's going to be ischemic, uh, and then it's going to perforate. Okay, so as long as we're in the abdomen. Okay, so retroperitoneal hematoma. Um, We talk about three zones, zones one, two, and three. And, And what are those zones? What's zone one? So zone one is in the uh, midline and contains the um, aorta and IVC or the primary so Zone organs. one is central. Zone two? Zone two is the lateral retroperitoneal structures, um, includes the kidney and colon. Good. And zone three? Is the pelvis. Good. And, and the key there is you're worried about the major blood vessels in each zone. Right? You want to prove there's an injury or there's not. So zone one, you're worried about aorta vena cava. Zone two, you're worried about the renal artery and vein. And zone three, you're worried about iliacs. Okay, so now you have a penetrating injury that's got a hematoma, retroperitoneal hematoma. Zone one. Zone one, you'd explore. Zone two. Zone two. Um, you, don't have, on you don't have to think about this. Penetrating, you explore. Zone three. You explore. Good. On the ab site, you explore all penetrating retroperitoneal hematomas now blunt so blunt you have a zone one hematoma blunt um you explore yeah again on the ab site you would explore that because it's a it's a aortic or vena cave injury you have to rule out but now zone two or zone three um so zone two or zone three this would depend on further imaging and you're in the or you're just you're looking at it. So I would not explore it. Uh, well, when would and when wouldn't you explore it? So if it's expanding hematoma, good. I would explore yeah, expanding or pulsatile hematoma. Um, and if it's not expanding and non-pulsatile, I would leave it. Leave it alone because what is it in zone two? What's causing that? Uh, renal artery, renal vein. It's a kidney. It's a kidney. Right? kidney so by far and away, it's going to be a kidney lack that we know you don't. We know if you start exploring, you're probably going to end up doing an nephrectomy. And zone three, what's causing that in blunt trauma? 
uh, pelvic fracture. Yeah. Which we also know you don't want to get into, right? So much lower suspicion for a true vascular injury and blunt, and that's why we don't go into those other than zone ones. Okay, well, and as long as we mention pelvic fracture, so what are some of the associated injuries you always have to evaluate the patient for who has a significant pelvic fracture? Uh, so you just have to think about what lives in the pelvis. So rectum, uh, bladder, vagina, um, urethra. Okay, good. So you, you have a patient who has an open book pelvic fracture and systolic blood pressure is 90. Uh, so uh, those are typical, typically uh, with open book pelvic fractures, you're talking about bleeding from veins and they're usually easily compressed. So you want to do pelvic, uh, pelvic binders, slings. Um, to stabilize them. Um, Good. Intervention number one is you close the volume, so you place them in a pelvic binder or a sling or a wrap. Uh, and then what's your next step in the management? Uh, generally, you're taking that patient to the interventional radiology suite for angioembolization. Good. And if they give you a scenario where the patient is too unstable, they're, they're severely unstable, you've put the binder on, so you're going to the OR to pack the pelvis? Yeah, I think the, the answer today would be, and what do you mean by pack the pelvis? Laparotomy and pack the pelvis? So you're, you're packing the uh, extra peritoneal space. Good. So now there would be an extra peritoneal, pelvic packing, and probably then to angiography. Okay. So speaking of pelvic massive hemorrhage, we'll talk about shock. Um, so what is shock? How would you define shock? Or how does ATLS define shock? So um, shock is when you have um, hyperperfusion to the organ system. Good. So it's just it's end organ hypoperfusion. It's not a blood pressure. It's not a lactate. Those are markers. But shock is end organ hypoperfusion. So in trauma, we talk a lot about classes of hemorrhagic shock. Everyone has taken ATLS and had to memorize that painful table of, of class one through four shock. Um, but that classifies it by the percentage of blood loss. Right, and and the simple system for remembering that is uh, the tennis score system. Good. So how so do you do that? I might be able to figure this one out. So it goes uh, fifteen. Well, what do you start at before fifteen? Zero. So yeah, you're you start at zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, so class one would be fifteen uh, percent body loss. Okay, It'd be zero to fifteen. Zero mm-hmm. to fifteen. Um, class two would be um, fifteen to thirty percent. Mm-hmm. And then uh, class three would be uh, 30 to 45 percent. 30 to 40. 30 to 40. Okay. And then? Um, greater than that would be class four. Yeah. And, and so, like, like you said, I use the tennis system. You just you write down on your sheet of paper from top to bottom, 0, 15, 30, game over, or 0, 15, 30, 40, game over. And then in between each of those numbers is class one, class two, class three, class four. And that's your, that's your percentage of the blood you've lost. So what's the first class where you develop hypotension? Uh, that's class three. Good. So, and, and, and usually if they're asking a question about a class, they'll give you hypotension and ask you what that is, and that's, that's class three. Um, and the earliest signs of shock? There's usually two that they'll ask about. Uh, tachycardia. Tachycardia. One last bout, and um, altered mental. Mm. So altered mental you shouldn't get until you're three or four. Uh, oh, yeah, so a uh, uh, decreased uh, pulse pressure. Narrowed pulse uh, pressure. Yeah, so if they, if they give you a question about the early class one shock, the answer is either tachycardia or narrowed pulse pressure. All right. So they do have that in class one shock, 0 to 15, they can get. I thought you didn't have any signs in 0 to 15%. 
Well, the first sign will usually be mild tachycardia. Mild tachycardia. Yeah. Okay, so class two, I think, is when at least the ab site starts defining. You'll get the narrowed pulse pressure. Yep, class and that's two really is the only pulse pressure. that and tachycardia you'll see in class two. Yeah, and usually the question is hypotension. And okay. what they're getting at is now you're in class three. Right. Okay. Um, okay. And now, and we touched on this earlier, you have a patient who's clearly perfusing their extremities and their systolic is 60. What's your uh, diagnosis? That's a neurogenic shock. Good. That's spinal cord injury, uh, again, until proven otherwise. Okay. You mentioned damage control surgery. So we talk about the lethal triad or the triad of death, which is what? Um, it is hypothermia, coagulopathy, and acidosis. Good. And so if you're doing damage control surgery, we, there's four phases of any trauma laparotomy. Um, and for damage control, you only get to the first two, and then you're done. And what are those first two? So you want to control the hemorrhage first, and then uh, you want to control um, sepsis or GI spillage. Good. And then if you weren't in damage control, phase three would be fully explore and diagnose all the injuries phase four is reconstruction so in damage control all you're doing is stop blood stop gi spillage and then temporary abdominal closure and then what do you do with the patient uh you bring them back to the icu and resuscitate them okay and then um at 24 hours you go back to the operating room if they're stable what about at 23 um you wait till 24 (laughs) it's actually it's once they're once they're they're stabilized and normalized there there's no there's no time set. In fact, if they give you a question about that, and they'll give you choices of like, you know, when the patient's coagulopathy is corrected or at 24 hours, the answer is going to be when they're physiologically corrected. Okay. Now they had their damage control procedure, and they're in the ICU, and you're worried about abdominal compartment syndrome. So what would be some of the signs you're looking for? Uh, so you'll, uh, some of the first signs you'll see is from, is decreased urine output um, and increased uh, peak pressures on your vent. Good. And, and the increased peak pressures is the key. A lot of patients will have low urine output for various reasons, but when they, especially on the ab site, they'll give you this. The patient's peak airway pressure is going up, and if you start to read that, the answer is abdominal compartment syndrome. And how would you confirm that? Uh, you can measure a bladder pressure. Good. You can measure a bladder pressure, and you can use the absolute bladder pressure. Generally, when we start to get above 20, we're worrying about compartment syndrome. Like we talked about with the uh, head bleeds, same thing with abdominal. You can also calculate the perfusion pressure. Um, But generally, a pressure above 20, if they start to have the other signs, especially elevated mean airway pressures, then that's abdominal compartment syndrome. And what are you going to do? Decompressive laparotomy. Good. Yeah, uh, that's the answer on the ab site, I would say. Uh, other than there's probably one scenario. So you have a burn patient who is developing abdominal compartment syndrome. You know, they've gotten their massive resuscitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you going for SCAR? Like S- or? No, that, oh, that's a separate area. So yeah. let's, let's assume they don't have a circumferential chest wall burn. Um, but that's the scenario where they'll develop an abdominal compartment syndrome from just massive ascites building up. And so, so the, the preferred intervention there would be that you put a drain in and drain hmm. the ascites. Okay. Any, any other compartment syndrome they give you, the answer is laparotomy. Okay. We talked about damage control surgery. Now there's damage control resuscitation. So you have a patient who's shot in the abdomen. Their systolic blood pressure is 80. The medics are bringing them in from the field. And the question is, how much fluid and what type should they give this patient? 
This is similar to the treatment for rupturing aortic aneurysms now is the permissive hypotension. Um, the thought being that the more you recess, if you over resuscitate them, it'll allow them to bleed easier. So what's your answer going to be? To the medic? Uh, it's going to say gunshot wound to the abdomen, systolic of 80, and which of the following would you do? I would do you know, 500 cc's, a liter, albumin, Heplock IV. Um, I would do one liter. No, the an- the answer is no fluid. No right? fluid. That, that's the in the pre hospital setting. Okay. So it would be Heplock IV. You know, let them run hypotensive. Unless they're, you know, unless they have altered mental status, and then and you get them to the operating room. That's the concept of permissive. Is that really going to be the answer on the app side? I feel like the answer they always they're still on the ATLS. You give two liters of fluid. You think that's well for for blunt trauma? Yeah, but if if they're giving you a penetrating trauma and the you know systolic is is eighty. And they're asking, and I especially think now, since okay. the damage control resuscitation studies have come out. I'm purposely missing questions to highlight these uh, interesting <laughs> and controversial areas to help you guys in the ab site. So hope you appreciate that. Okay. And then blood products. So it's going to give you a choice of, of resuscitating this patient. And it's going to give you, you know, a choice of give them some PRBCs now, um, give them some PRBCs, check coags, and then wait until they're back and then correct them. Or it's going to give them some PRBCs and FFP and playlists up front. Uh, So, yeah, we're going to start with uh, blood product resuscitation in a penetrating injury. So, hypotensification. So, you know, blood or platelets up front, and then FFP is generally the uh, protocols I've seen. Yeah, so so the answer is going to be the one where you're starting off giving them pack cells, FFP, and and some platelets, and not the we're going to give them six units of packed check coags and wait four hours and then start plasma. So that's that's called damage control or balanced resuscitation. All right, and and there was just a big study on this called the proper trial, which we don't need to get into, um, but that did show a decrease in bleeding deaths with a one-to-one resuscitation. Um, you might get asked about hemostatic adjuncts or, or drugs you can give to the bleeding patient. So if they give you a question and you come across, it's multiple choice, and one of the answers is factor seven, is that going to be the wrong answer or the right answer? I think that will be the wrong answer. Good. So that, But that's one that will be in there as one of those ones to fake you. Factor seven has pretty much gone out of use for trauma. Um, but if they do give you a question about a bleeding trauma patient and is there anything pharmacology you can give them, uh, what would be the right answer? I, I think it's a TXA. Yeah, tranexamic um, acid. And that's um, for fibrinolysis. Good. Um, and who would, who would you give that to? Um, the uh, massively bleeding uh, patient that's okay. had resuscitation. And when would you give it to them? Early. So, within the first hour, I think they say, is improved survival. Yeah, so it's within three hours. Three hours. So right. bleeding patient within three hours, tranexamic acid, would be it, that would be the answer on the app site. It's been shown to have a survival benefit in the big study called the CRASH-2 trial. And what does that drug do? It is a uh, plasminogen activator inhibitor. Okay, which does what? What does it do for you? So it stops the breakdown of fibrin essentially good stops you from breaking down clot right because you you activate a hyperfibrinolytic response usually if you're massively bleeding okay and how would you be able to tell if somebody was having massive fibrinolysis Uh, then you'd need your tag or your rotem okay so so tag and rotem has has become a hot topic in trauma 
it has now reached the point where it's it's on board exams. It's on our surgical critical care and trauma exams. So, so and a lot of people aren't real comfortable with reading tags. <clears throat> so, and you don't have to know a lot that's in depth about reading a tag. Um, I think a, a general system that's easy to think about. The, they'll give you a lot of parameters that are confusing: R time, alpha angle, max amplitude, and and for example, in the when they give you R time, don't worry about the R part. Look at the second word of the parameter they're giving you. So the second word is either going to be time, angle, amplitude, or lysis, right? And so time. Think about time just like a PT or PTT, prothrombin time, partial thromboplastin time. That's telling you how long it takes you to start clotting, right? So the R time is just the time it takes you to start clotting. So if that's prolonged, then what would you do for that patient? Or what's their problem? They have a uh, platelet deficit or coagulation deficit. They, they, they have a clotting factor problem. So that's the and that's the usual one. And what do you do with someone who's got an elevated INR? What would you give them? PCC. Not not on no, novel antiviral coagulants. Okay, FFP. Yeah. So that's the patient. So they've got a prolonged R time. You give them FFP. Angle tells you about the velocity of something, right? So that's just telling you how fast they're forming a strong clot. And so if they're if they're not forming a clot very quickly their fibrin and fibrinogen isn't functioning, what are you going to give them? Uh, cryo. Good. That would be the patient you give cryo. The maximum amplitude, so amplitude is the width of the graph, and that all that's telling you is the clot strength. So if their maximum amplitude is smaller, so they're not forming a strong clot or a platelet plug, what are you going to give them? Platelets. Good. And then the last parameter will be a measure of the lysis or how much fibrinolysis they're having. And that's typically an LY30. And if they're having a lot of clot lysis, so their LY30 is high, what would you give them? Uh, TXA. Good. And that's, that's the simple, I think, way to think about a tag. All right. Um, we'll, we'll move into, I think, the you know, last couple minutes of this. So kidney and bladder injuries. Uh, usual mechanism? Uh, these are usually blunt. blunt and especially for bladder, what's that usually associated with? Uh, deceleration injuries with, you know, seat belts, car accidents. But what associated injury do they usually have? Uh, urethral injury, uh, pelvic fractures. And, yeah, it's, that's almost okay. always a pelvic fracture, and they've got hematuria. Um, so will a bladder injury always have hematuria, a, a true bladder injury, full thickness laceration? It should. Yes. Yeah. Will a kidney injury always have hematuria? Not necessarily. Yeah. So, so a bladder injury, if they do not have hematuria, that essentially rules it out. A kidney injury, they can or they might not have hematuria because it would just take a while for the blood to get down to the bladder. So when do you operate for a bladder injury? Or what type of bladder injury would you operate on? So if there's an intraperitoneal um, uh, uh, or spillage into the intraperitoneal space. Good. And what about an extraperitoneal injury? Uh, those you can generally manage uh, not or with a Foley catheter drainage. Good. Uh, and I think for the abscite, those would be the standard answers. Uh, ureteral injuries. So first off, uh, just a little anatomy. If, if you were to tell someone how to find the ureteral mm-hmm. or how to find the ureter, 
so the most you, reliable location in the abdomen? Yeah, it's usually along, uh, at the pelvic rim along the iliacs when the uh, internal and external iliac split. Good. It, over crosses, the top of it. it crosses over the front of the bifurcation of the iliac into the common or into the uh, internal and external iliac. Good. So management of ureteral injuries. Generally, they'll give you if it's a proximal, mid, or distal injury. Mm-hmm. So, and the standard that they usually give you is a mid ureteral injury. It's transected. Yeah. And how would you manage that? So, if it's transected, if it's a clean transection, uh, you can you know, spatulate the ends, perform a primary anastomosis over a double J stunt. Okay, using what type of suture? Um, absorbable suture. Yeah, remember, anywhere in the uh, urinary tract, so bladder, kidney, or ureter, it's always absorbable suture because you don't want stones to form. Okay, and you always want to do that repair over a stent. Um, now they give you a distal ureteral injury, ureteral injury. So th- those you can generally reimplant into the bladder. Um, so you may have to mobilize a portion of the bladder, so is hitch. Those type of things. Good. If it doesn't reach the bladder, then you just bring the bladder to it, which the psoas hitch is just you're bringing the bladder to the ureter and sewing it to the psoas. All right. You already mentioned urethral injury. So just real quick, the physical exam signs of a urethral injury. I've seen this on every test yep. I've ever taken. <laughs> uh, so the, the, high, the, the high points are the meatal blood. Um, and then if they have any scrotal or perineal hematoma or high riding prostate on the DRE. Okay, and if you have those, what are you going to do? You're going to do a retrograde urethrogram okay. uh, before you place a Foley, before you do anything else as far as their urologic system is concerned. That's, that's your abside answer. All right, uh, real quickly on extremity trauma. We mentioned hard and soft signs of vascular injury. So what would the hard signs of a vascular injury be? And this is for extremity trauma. Um, pulsatile bleeding. Good. Uh, expanding hematoma. Expanding or pulsatile hematoma. Good. Absent pulses. Good. What else? A thrill. Palpation or auscultation. Good. A brewery or a thrill. And um, that's it as far as I know. And, and some people include, well, some people include uh, unexplained anemia. Unexplained severe anemia. Okay. Um, and then the other one would be uh, just observed pulsatile bleeding from the wound. How about soft signs? So a non-expanding hematoma, Good. Uh, decreased pulses. Good. Um, non-pulsatile bleeding. Mm-hmm. Um, and then anything about location? Um, if it's near major vessels yeah so proximity injuries so injury to a nearby nerve or a bone like a mid femur fracture you'd consider a superficial femoral artery injury okay so you mentioned decreased pulses so what would you consider decreased um or how would we assess that doppler signals i mean so palpation is traditional Mm -hmm. um so um i generally think is there any number we can generate that'll help us guide our an abi good and what would be concerning for you for an abi um less than 0.9 good less than 0.9 is the indication hard indication of you need vascular imaging so uh, they'll often give you extremity injury and you have a strong palpable pulse and there's no there's no uh, active hemorrhage Uh, you know even they'll say gunshot wound to the thigh but you have a strong palpable pulse and they ask you what you want to do next, and the answer is not angiogram. It's not CT angio. If you have a normal vascular exam, you've essentially ruled out a significant vascular injury. 
Now that's for extremity. So that's distal to the shoulder, distal to the hip. You know, you can have a subclavian injury where you can still feel a pretty normal pulse. But for extremity, the, the exam has really become king. If you have soft signs, what are you going to do? Uh, that's generally further imaging. Good. Yeah, that, that's an indication for the CT angiogram or standard angiogram. And just what are the principles of management of the artery injury? Generally, you know, operative repair um, mm-hmm. is the standard. And if you can primarily repair it, which is rare, um, then or you can use a the most common would be an interposition graft with a saphenous vein Good. Uh, harvested. It's, it, it's going to be a reverse saphenous vein graft for yeah. an extremity arterial trauma. Um, how about a vein injury? Um, a vein injury, many of them you can just ligate. Good. It's If it's a simple laceration, you can do a primary repair. If it's anything above that, then ligation is fine, especially in the extremities. Um, anything else to consider? Now, they give you the patient who had a popliteal artery and vein injury that you just fixed. And they're going to say any other any other treatments you would. So depending on the time of ischemia, you'd uh, want to do a fasciotomy. Good. Always consider fasciotomy for extremity vascular injury. If they give you a popliteal artery and vein injury, then the answer is fasciotomy. <laughs> That's going to be the answer. Um, and so, and how would you do that fasciotomy? We'll say for the calf. So you do a two incision. Uh, on the medial and lateral aspect, four-compartment uh, fasciotomy. Good. And what are those compartments? You have the um, the lateral compartment, yep. um, anterior compartment, and then you have the superficial um, posterior compartment, and then the deep posterior, posterior compartment. Good. And which compartment are the blood vessels in? Deep compartment contains the popliteal yeah, artery. The deep, deep posterior compartment. That's one of the ways you know you've opened it okay. is you're looking at those vessels. Okay. Uh, well, in first talking about hemorrhagic shock, uh, I, I think we should clarify, again, the clinical signs of, of the different classes. We talked about class one through four and the, the tennis system of, of identifying the percentage of blood loss. So, so as we discussed, the first sign of hypotension is in which class? Class three. Good. So, so that's, that's probably the most common question. Um, but for class one, the initial clinical signs would be what? I believe it's just some anxiety. Yeah, uh, exactly. So there's no tachycardia. There's no hypotension yet, at least in most patients. And then in class two is where you get the earliest clinical signs of hemorrhage, which would be what two factors? Is it uh, decreased pulse pressure and maybe tachypnea? Yeah, so narrowed pulse pressure and tachycardia. Oh, tachycardia. So, so oftentimes you'll get asked what's the earliest earliest vital sign change, and, and usually the answer is narrowed pulse pressure. Okay, let's move on next uh, to finish out our abdominal trauma. Obviously, yeah, the the three rules of general surgery residency. John, uh, don't screw with the pancreas. Yeah, I think is so. One so of that's them. good to start with rule number three. Rule first. number three first. Uh, <laughs> so eat when you can, sleep when you can. Don't mess with don't the pancreas. Don't mess with the pancreas. That's right. Okay, but we're going to mess with the pancreas. So so we talk about pancreatic trauma, and I like to think about it as. Not so bad pancreatic injuries and bad pancreatic injuries, or the ones that are going to be a problem. And so, what do you think the factors are that make a pancreatic injury a bad injury? So, bad pancreatic injuries are going to be those that have uh, issues with the main duct. Okay, so number one factor of are you going to manage this non operatively or operatively is, is the duct injured? Good. Uh, the amount of uh, parenchyma that is violated or that is involved. 
Okay, that that's another factor, but yeah. I wouldn't say that that would be a, a key factor. The next one would be location. Okay. So what would be bad and good? So bad location, I'm guessing, would be the head of the pancreas, and uh, a better location would be a tail or body of the pancreas. Good. And then probably the third factor is associated injuries. So so what's what's the associated injury you get with the pancreas that that really that bumps it up a grade? Uh, I. I think it would be a vascular injury that would be. That would also be bad, but okay. what's right next to the pancreas and the C-loop? Oh, it, well, the any injury to the duodenum would yeah, be Yeah, so a, when you a, have a associated problem. duodenal injury, that makes it, that's probably your most complex pancreatic injury. Okay, so let's just talk about operative management. You have a pancreatic laceration, and you were exploring the abdomen, and you see this laceration at the tail. There's clearly no duct injury. Uh, clearly no duct injury, laceration at the tail. Um, you have two options here. Um, you could just lay drains and get out of there versus a distal pancreatectomy. Okay. And on the ab site, which one are you going to do? Um, no ductal injury. No ductal injury. I'm just going to lay drains. Good. Drain it only. Now you have a distal pancreatic injury with a duct injury. Then I would perform the distal pancreatectomy. Okay. With or without splenectomy? Uh, in a trauma situation, I would probably do a splenectomy. Yes. So that would be your answer, except in a certain scenario that we'll, we'll talk about next. Okay, now you have an injury to the pancreatic head. Laceration of the pancreatic head. Laceration to the pancreatic head. Um, is there ductal injury? We'll say no. No ductal injury. So I will uh, lay drains and okay. get out of there. And, and now there is a ductal injury. I, I probably will still lay drains Good. and get so, out of there. So you probably didn't need to ask that. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I think we talked about this in Morning Report the other day, the the quote from Top Knife about pancreatic injuries. Um, you treat it like you eat a crawfish, so you eat the tail and suck the head. Good, and I think that's a good principle to follow. So resect the tail, if there's a, especially if there's a ductal injury, drain the head. The only situation where, especially on the ab site, I think you would do a spleen-preserving distal pancreatectomy would be in what patient population? In a child? Yeah, so if they give you a child who is stable and, and they will have to give you that, uh, then you can do a spleen-preserving distal pancreatectomy. If they give you a child who's unstable, which they often will, just because they know you'll want to try and save the spleen because it's a kid, if they're unstable, the, in- the answer is still do a distal pancreatectomy, splenectomy. Okay, and then real quickly, how do we surgically expose the pancreas? And we don't need to get into details, but there's maneuvers to expose the head, the body, and the tail. So we'll start with exposing the head. This is the easy one. So you typically would cocorize the duodenum to expose the head of the pancreas. Good. So you have to mobilize usually the hepatic flexure of the colon and then cocorize the duodenum. You can expose and, and palpate the entire head. Now the body. The body, I think you're uh, finding your SMV as your landmark and following that. Uh, to the body of the pancreas just to, to dissect that plane between the body and the, the So vessel. what do you have to open to expose the pancreas? You have to get in your lesser sac. So how do you do that? What do you have to divide? Uh, you come through your, your greater omentum. Yeah, so you divide the gastro sac. So you widely open the gastrocolic ligament, and now you're looking at the body of the pancreas. And where is your avascular plane for mobilizing the pancreas? Inferior border or superior border? It's in the inferior border. Yeah, inferior border is completely avascular, so that's always where you mobilize. And then exposing the tail of the pancreas. Uh, exposing the tail of the pancreas, you're going to bring down your splenic flexure, uh, and it should be right there. 
Well, what do you have to mobilize up usually to fully mobilize the tail? Um, what comes along with the pancreatic tail? The spleen. Yeah. So usually you have to mobilize the spleen. Take down lateral attachments, mobilize the spleen medially. That will lift up the tail. Also known as the aired maneuver. A-I-R-D. A little piece of trivia. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, compartment syndrome. We talked about the leg and the calf yesterday, which is the most common. One other question you might get that we'll run through real quickly is the forearm. So forearm, how many compartments? We have two compartments in the forearm. Okay. There's actually three. Oh. You're, you're, there's two that matter. Okay. Okay. So what are the compartments? The two that matter, the anterior and the posterior compartments. Yeah, or extensor and flexor, or dorsal and volar. And then there's a third compartment that's known as the mobile wad, uh, which is essentially the brachioradialis muscle. And the only two you need to open are the extensor and the flexor compartments. And, and I think that would be the only thing you would get asked about compartment syndrome. So we will, we will uh, finish off with our, uh, the main part of our trauma session with, at the end of ATLS, you always get the two lectures on special populations. And these always are favorites for the boards. One is pediatric trauma patient. The other is the pregnant trauma patient. I think every abside I ever took had at least one or two questions on each of those. So the nice thing is you can usually predict what they're going to ask. There's a, very, there's a very finite amount of questions they can ask. So pediatric trauma. So one of the things they talk about is treat pediatrics just like adult, but then there's a whole talk on how they're different. <laughs> so, so airway differences in the pediatric patient. What are the differences in terms of the airway in the pediatric patient, anatomic differences? Um, with getting an airway, they have a larger occiput, so um, sometimes you have to put some towels under the chest to okay, elevate the good. neck. Um, they have um, a smaller airway, obviously, with a narrow cricothyroid. Smaller, smaller and shorter airway. Um, size of the tongue? Size of the tongue is larger. Good. And position of the airway. Is it more anterior than adults or more posterior? It's more anterior. Good, which means you have to pull up harder when you're doing direct laryngoscopy. Okay, you're going to intubate a kid for trauma. What are you going to intubate them with? Cuffed or uncuffed tube? An uncuffed tube. Okay, that has actually changed. It is now a cuffed tube. And, and essentially anything but a baby, we now use cuffed tubes you know, they're low pressure, very safe cuff tubes now. Right. You don't get necrosis like we did with the high pressure tubes. So the answer for pediatric trauma now is a cuff tube. So that was the concern before was necrosis of the trachea. Yeah, and because kids. The, the cuffs were much higher pressure cuffs. Okay. Um, but now it, it's a cuff tube, and you want to fully protect the airway. And how would you estimate the size of the tube you're going to need? It's one of those annoying formulas. I like those little charts they have in the ER. Um, Good. That, that's your best answer is use the Breslow tape Breslow. in clinical practice, but on your ab site, they're probably going to ask you to name a size tube. So, so there's one easy way is you look at the width of the uh, patient's pinky nail bed and, that, and find the tube that's that same width. Um, if you're going to just go by age, there's a formula. Yeah, so the formula is it's usually age in years divided by 4 plus 4. Um, some formulas have adopted that to age divided by 4 plus 3 for cuff tubes, but, but most of us use the age divided by 4 plus 4. So, for example, for the 4-year-old, that would be a 4 divided by 4 is 1 plus 4, so a size 5 cuffed endotracheal tube. All right, so what problems can you have with innovating a kid? 
You can main stem. So right main stem intubation. Right. That's a very common one. They'll give you that the patient has no breast sounds on the right. And what are the answers? The answer is you pull back the tube right. first before you put a chest tube in. Um, and then you intubate a kid, and now his heart rate is 40 as they're doing the direct laryngoscopy. So they're just much more sensitive to the manipulation of the... Yeah, bradycardia during direct laryngoscopy is pretty common. So most algorithms either premedicate with... Bradycardia would be atropine. With atropine, or you always have it standing by to give if they develop bradycardia. Okay, pediatric response to hemorrhage compared to adults? So uh, these patients uh, can compensate really well in the beginning and... uh, where other where uh, a typical adult patient would not be able to compensate and you're going to see clinical signs earlier with an adult you won't see those in in a pediatric patient which means that when they do crash they crash hard so what is a pediatric patient going to do as they're bleeding vital signs wise they're going to remain mainly stable and and tachycardic good so they get tachycardic they get tachycardic tachycardic more tachycardic and then they fall off the cliff um, now you want to bolus this patient. So how do you bolus the pediatric trauma patient? So and we'll start with crystalloid. So with a crystalloid bolus, it's uh, actually simpler, I think, than the adult, just 20 cc's per kig. Good. And you can do that twice. Okay. And now you want to give them blood products. So I just half that, which would be 10 cc's. Excellent. 10, 10 cc's per kilogram for blood products. Okay. And what should always be on the differential diagnosis in the pediatric trauma patient? Well, uh, whenever you have a pediatric patient coming into the emergency room, you have to be concerned about uh, non-accidental trauma. Good. And and that's especially for head trauma, uh, for head bleeds, especially in babies and younger children. Always remember to keep that on your differential. Okay, now we'll move on to the pregnant trauma patient. So there's a whole bunch of physiologic changes that we get with pregnancy. There's really only a couple that are really relevant to trauma. So the first one is what happens to their circulating blood volume? They have an increase in their circulating blood volume. Okay. And their hematocrit? is actually less. Okay. So they have a physiologic dilution or anemia. How about changes in their respiratory status? Uh, they have a... They have increased respirations mm-hmm. and uh, decreased tidal volume. Okay. So what will that do to their acid-base status? Um, so they will actually be uh, respiratory alkalosis. Good. And so how does that affect you in terms of your trauma management or looking for signs of respiratory failure? Um, potentially, you might be reassured um, by either the CO2 values on ABG or... Um, on the acid-base status, thinking that they're not as acidotic as they may be. Yeah, so, be. so a CO, PCO2 of 45 would probably not raise many flags in a normal person. But in a pregnant patient whose baseline is 35, that right. may represent respiratory failure. Okay, so this patient is comes in and they're hypotensive. And she's seven months pregnant. So I'm going to have them... Lay on their left lateral uh, decubitus to take the pressure off the IVC. Good. So you want to put them left side down, take the pressure off the IVC. And this patient had abdominal trauma, and you do your workup, and, you know, she has some injuries. Let's say there was a pelvic fracture, baby looks okay, and anything else now we want to consider. 
Um, right. So I'm concerned about uh, placental abruption in a trauma patient. Okay. Uh, has a very high mortality for both the child and the mother. Um, so I would do the blood test, the Clyauer Betke test, where you test for fetal blood within the maternal uh, circulation. Okay. And and not only placental abruption, any significant abdominal trauma can cause some degree of maternal fetal hemorrhage. Okay. So the Clyauer Betke test is looking for fetal blood cells in maternal circulation. And how do you use that? What does that, what does that change for you? I think you would uh, be uh, lean more towards uh, observation with fetal monitoring in a, in a situation that you had a positive test. Okay, but does that drive any intervention you would do um, if you found fetal maternal hemorrhage? I, I would do a transvaginal ultrasound um, to evaluate the placenta. Any medication you might administer? The Rogam. Okay. Who are you going to give that to? So a negative mother, because if she gets exposed to an Rh-positive blood cells from the fetus, she's going to develop antibodies, right? right? And then the concern is the next pregnancy that is an Rh-positive fetus, those antibodies are going to be attacking, right? So you want to prevent her forming those anti-Rh antibodies. So any Rh-negative mother who you strongly suspect had major abdominal trauma and fetal maternal hemorrhage or a positive Clyhar Becky test should get Rogam. All right, well, there's a lot of stuff in the literature about scanning pregnant patients. Um, what are the actual risks of CT scanning the pregnant trauma patient? So the what I always think is that if you feel like you need to CT scan the mother, then do it. Good. Uh, the risk of one CT scan, a total body CT scan for a pregnant patient is relatively low over the course of their life and the risk to the pregnant or to the to the baby is is also very low. Okay, so what are the risks to the baby? There's really two categories of risk. So I think the risk that a lot of people are concerned about or thinking about is the teratogenicity of Good. of uh, and then the and when development would, when of, would that happen? That would happen at that time and would be... Uh, but what stage of a, of a developing fetus? Oh, would sure, worry it, about that? in the first trimester Good. of, of so, the pregnancy. So if they're past the first trimester, you're not worried about, about developmental defects from radiation. Um, now, what about any other, any other so fetus, this, any age? The, at any age, they are at increased risk for developing malignancy down the road from radiation exposure. Good. And what do we say that risk is about? It's less than 1%, I think. Yeah. We, generally, it's 1 in 1,000. We say it increases their risk by 1 in 1,000 for future cancer. Um, but you're exactly right. If, if the patient needs to be scanned, then you scan them. And, and the risk of one CT scan is pretty negligible. Okay. And then last question, who needs admission for fetal monitoring? So uh, any, any abdominal trauma or trauma to the area of the uterus is a patient that I'm going to want to admit and, and have continuous fetal monitoring on, I believe. Okay, but do you have any criteria based on where they are in their pregnancy? So, but, so in general, you really only need to do fetal monitoring on patients where you're going to do some intervention. So basically, the fetus has to be past the point of viability if they have early pregnancy or early labor and delivery. So generally it's 24 weeks if they're at 24 weeks or greater 
then you usually admit them for at least 24 hours of fetal monitoring. If they're less than 24 weeks, you might still be admitting them, but there's not a lot of whole there's not a whole lot of reason to do continuous fetal monitoring. Okay, so 24 weeks is the cutoff. There. Yes, 24 weeks is the cutoff, and and that will probably get shorter as we get better at keeping premature babies alive. But but as of right now, it's 24 weeks. Okay. So, so what we're going to do right now is, with the last 10 minutes, we are going to do trauma quickfire round, a new feature that I'm introducing. <laughs> so, so we talked about how you want to look for those buzzwords and you kind of know what the answer is a lot of times before you get to even the answer choices. So I'm just going to read you some, some phrases taken in isolation and you tell me what the answer to the question is. There's no discussion. There's no explaining. There's no asking for more information, Okay. All right, you have a trauma patient, and you're in their chest. They've arrested, and there's bubbles in the coronary vessels. What's your diagnosis? And neither one of you can answer. You see air bubbles in the coronary vessels. Air embolism? Air embolism. Good. And if they're in the coronary vessels, it's usually a left-sided one from a pulmonary injury. Okay. You have an MVC patient who has a lumbar chance fracture and a seatbelt sign. Pancreatic injury. I'd also be worried about a missed hollow viscous injury. Good. And, and actually, in that scenario, the answer is going to be a hollow viscous injury. That's the setup for a hollow viscous injury. Now you have a kid with a handlebar below to his abdomen. Uh, pancreatic injury. Or? Duodenal. Good. That's pancreatic or duodenal hematoma. See? You guys are great at this. Left thoracoabdominal stab wound has a negative fast exam, a completely benign abdominal exam. What else are you worried about? Diaphragm. Good. That's the patient who, even if you don't think they have anything else, they should probably have a laparoscopy to look for a diaphragm injury. All right. Posterior knee dislocation. Popteal artery disruption. Excellent. Patient found down, was lying for 24 hours on their back, and their creatinine is 3.5 in their oliguric. So I'm worried about rhabdomyolysis. Excellent. You have a tracheostomy patient who's had a trach for a month. The nurse reports 10 cc's of bright red blood came from it and was suctioned out and then stopped. So I'm worried about a tracheoanominate fistula. Good. And that would be a sentinel bleed, which you don't want to wait for the real thing. Okay. You have a severe TBI patient, and the sodium is up to 155. And they're making 5 liters of urine. Uh, that's diabetes insipidus. Good. And bonus for the treatment? Desmopressin. DDAVP. Excellent. Okay. Now your patient is paralyzed from the waist down and has no cremasteric reflex. Spinal shock. Okay. Now they're paralyzed from the waist down and they have a cremasteric reflex. They're paralyzed. Yeah. yeah. So they're out of spinal shock and their deficits are probably permanent. Okay. You have a stab wound to the abdomen, a benign exam, but there is eviscerated omentum. I need to do an exploratory laparotomy in that patient. Good. Evisceration is a criteria for laparotomy. You have liver bleeding that continues, and it's unchanged after a Pringle maneuver. Then I can definitively say that I have... What's your injury? Hepatic vein injury. Good. Or? IVC. Retrohepatic vena cava. That's the classic retrohepatic vena cava. You have a chest x-ray that has an apical cap. I have a blunt thoracic injury. Blunt thoracic Aortic, Aortic injury. injury. Good. You have major bleeding during your neck exploration that it's not coming from the carotid or jugular. And there's arterial bleeding coming from posterior. 
vertebral artery. Excellent. Okay. You have a stab wound to the flank, and I'm telling you there is an injury to some structure. What structure is it? Kidney. Flank or back. Good. It's going to be kidney. Diaphragm. Colon. Colon. Kidney and colon. Those are the two big ones, and that's why we do the triple contrast, right? Okay. Um, you have a major trauma patient. You get a tag, and it shows an elevated LY30 of 10%, and the normal is 3%, so this is high lysis. Fibro. Fibro so what's the answer going to be? And they need, um, they need TXA. Good. Tranexamic acid. Excellent. Um, a lot of times they talk about getting exposure to vessels, and there's a gateway structure that you have to divide. So what's the gateway structure to the carotid bifurcation? The facial vein. Good. Common facial vein needs to be divided. What's the gateway, stru gateway structure to the great vessels and the aortic arch? So you did a median sternotomy, and you have to expose the great arch vessels. Innominate vein? The innominate vein. Yep. Innominate vein, you have to either retract it or divide it. Okay. Patient has hematemesis two weeks after a motor vehicle crash with a grade four liver lack. Um, a biliary uh, fistula to the hepatic artery. Okay, so you have hemobilia, hemobilia. and bonus for the treatment. Uh, angiographic embolization. Excellent. Okay, you have an open pelvic fracture and the patient has a big complex perineal wound. Colostomy. Excellent. Diverting colostomy. All right. Gunshot wound to the pelvis. Patient has a benign abdominal exam, but you do a rigid proctoscopy in the OR, and you see a hematoma in the rectal wall. Exploratory laparotomy. And what are you going to do during your laparotomy? So it's in the extraperitoneum rectum, and it's just a hematoma. What's the most important thing you're going to do for that extraperitoneal rectal injury? Colostomy. Diversion. Okay. Yeah. So, and that's a common one they'll give you, and you'll hem and haw because it's a hematoma. Right. Yeah. In fact, all you need to do is a colostomy. You could mm -hmm. just do a laparoscopic colostomy in that scenario. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Martin, for um, this hour and a half pimp session that we hope will be beneficial to all of our uh, colleagues out there and the things we do for our Behind the Knife listeners is uh, go to all extremes. Yeah, I can't thank you enough, Dr. Martin. You've always been a great friend of the program, and I just encourage everybody to uh, follow Dr. Martin on Twitter. It's uh, at Doc Martin. Doc Martin 22. Doc Martin 22. Uh, and check out the East Trauma Cast. Uh, I can't speak highly enough of it. Yep, thanks a lot, and uh, good luck to everyone on the app site. Remember, re read the question, read all the answers, but but look for those keywords, and a lot of times you'll know the answer before you get there, and, and you'll often have a first reaction of this is the right answer, and usually you're right, so don't start looking at some other details and then try and convince yourself otherwise. If you have that gut reaction, that's usually the right answer. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Medtronic for supporting surgical residents preparing for the 2023 app site. Since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursue their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife and Medtronic, dominate the app site. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening.
Until next time, dominate the day. 